Today on Chasing Leviathan, we pursue the big question, what is intimacy? My guest is Dr. Chris Lauer, the Chair of Philosophy at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Come, have a seat with us, and learn to listen with me. Tell us a little about, you know, Dr. Christopher Lauer. Um, what was been your journey into philosophy? And uh, how did you come to be a philosopher, if I can use that term? And uh, what, uh, what drew you to intimacy, to write a book about intimacy? What was that journey like as well? Okay, I guess for the philosopher question, it was kind of a two-step process. I came to college not really even thinking that being a professor was an option. It was one of those jobs like shoe salesmen that I, if you asked me about it, I would have known that people did that, but I never even thought about doing it myself. That's the first time I've but, heard someone uh, <laughs> compare philosophers to shoe salesmen. I love it. <laughs> and, and so, but when I got to, to college, it was at Berkeley and I took a rhetoric class in a department that at the time was headed by Judith Butler, oh. who I didn't know it at the time, but is a very famous philosopher. And uh, um, although I didn't take any classes from her, the uh, um, a number of the professors in the department had a similar orientation to, her, to hers and um, kind of led us in the direction of being able to read her work. <laughs> kind of, uh, I think that was one of the goals by the, end, by the time we graduated, that we would be good readers of her. And so uh, that made me realize that thinking could actually be something that mattered. Hmm in a way that I uh, hadn't really thought about before. I, my, my kind of backup plan, or I mean, my default plan, as it were, when I came to college was something to do with wind power. So climate change was the issue of our day. Didn't know what exactly what I, was, I would do, but I was good enough at science and other stuff that I figured I'd find a way to do something meaningful that way. But then that all changed when I realized that ideas matter. Mm. And uh, it wasn't until my final year of college that I decided that I wanted to study philosophy in graduate school. It was uh, um, a kind of confluence of things. Uh, all of the disciplines in, uh, that call themselves theory, like uh, um political theory, post-colonial theory, uh, gender theory, and so on. Uh, they were tremendously exciting, but uh, the metabolism was just too fast for me. I, uh, the, um, the reading a book in a week and uh, then being expected to have an opinion on it, uh, I instead wanted to read more slowly, mm. and that's what led me to a history of philosophy program. And uh, basically, um, one version of that is I wanted to be more responsible with my scholarship than I had been as an undergrad. But another version of that is just to let my mind catch its breath and uh, um, work through material more slowly. And uh, the irony, in a way, is that 
uh, as I've been teaching, I've gone, I've moved more and more to the fast kind of thinking as a teacher. Mm. And uh, that excitement that originally got made me want to be an academic, that's uh, much closer to how I teach now than the uh, plotting, let's spend 50 minutes on a paragraph style of graduate school in philosophy. Uh, and is that, do you think so, that's a, that's how it gets came out philosophy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that, is that movement to a faster type of philosophy? Do you think that's a measurement of your skill that you've gained or is it just a, a change in style? What, what do you think has motivated that change? I think it's more interactive with my students that, uh, I'm feeling their energy level and, uh, I just, uh, um, I don't have the discipline to enforce the plodding, rigorous, let's spend uh, uh, hours on this paragraph style that uh, I did in grad school. And so that leads me much more to the uh, chasing squirrels style <laughs> of uh, everything that anyone wants to talk about. Let's do it. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, they exercise you more. And so your metabolism's a little faster. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a terrible way of thinking about it. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, the, uh, so how did you come to write? So we're talking today about your book, Intimacy, which when is that coming out? Oh, it came out five years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> oh, because I, yeah. I found you through the other book that is coming out. That's why. That makes sense. No, the other book is even older. So uh, despite you finding me on the new, uh, the new releases, I don't have any new releases right now. I'm kind of uh, oh, it must have come up in like in this, featured. Current book that I'm right oh, now. that's really interesting. I was looking through. It must have come up in like featured. They just like you that much. So this book is out, folks. Uh, <laughs> you can you can find it. It is uh, Intimacy by uh, Dr. Christopher Lauer. Um, enjoyed the read. Uh, I appreciated. I think the high metabolism style makes sense. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to ask you about, uh, the methodology of it, but before we do that, what prompted you to write this book? So, uh, the, the first book the, that you mentioned, the, uh, the Hegel and Schelling, the suspension of reason in Hegel and Schelling, that, uh, uh, that was my dissertation and it, um, it, it was my way of coming to terms with, uh, this challenge that we face in this uh, um, in contemporary society of the fact that uh, there are so many forces of unreason, and yet uh, the answer to those forces of, of unreason can't be just uh, doubling down on the rational. Mm. And uh, um, this uh, the intimacy book is part one of a three, part, three book project on recognition. And uh, the idea is that everything that we uh, care about is in some way based on either a need for recognition or uh, a duty to give recognition to others. And so pretty much every ethical imperative in some way fits into that schema of recognition as I see it. This is a hypothesis that um, was put forward in many ways. You can see it in Plato sometimes. Uh, Adam Smith has a version of it in his book on moral sentiments. 
Uh, Hegel is perhaps the most famous for advancing this hypothesis, and he largely gets it from uh, his immediate predecessor, Fichte. And in the contemporary world, uh, one of the most important thinkers arguing for recognition being at the center of philosophy is a Frankfurt School thinker named Axel Honneth. Hmm. And so the structure of these uh, of this three-book series um, is my own take on the three-part structure that both Hegel and Axel Honneth give of a seeking recognition first and foremost in something immediate that I call intimacy. Uh, Hanet calls it love. Hegel associates it with the family. And uh, then in something that is uh, a little bit more formal, has a little bit more structure in it, uh, I'm going to focus on value for that. For uh, Hegel, the emphasis was more on legal personhood. And then uh, the, uh, the, the highest level, in a way, is solidarity. And I take that term from Axel Honneth, that uh, what we're looking for in making our lives meaningful and figuring out what matters more than anything else is uh, a way of telling our stories that can uh, cohere or at least are compatible with the stories that other people tell about their own stories. And so... Uh, I just started uh, with intimacy, and uh, because that was kind of the first part, but it didn't hurt that I started writing the book shortly after getting married, and I finished it up after um, my two children were born, and mm. so uh, there was uh, um, a great deal of material that to uh, that could kind of help me with that, and I was living through some of the uh, most intense forms of intimacy. Luckily, I didn't make it to the final chapter during that period, which is all about mourning. Right. So the um, the mourning is uh, um, the mourning chapter is mostly observed. I've mm. had pe- I've lost people in my life, but while I was writing it. There, um, there was no one in particular that I was thinking about with that relation, uh, with that morning relationship. Though, when you talk about the third in, uh, you know, the dyads and the triads, you talk about <laughs> adding adding kids into the mix of of a marriage. Yeah, that I could see <laughs> that definitely was very real to you in that moment. Yeah, and really, that started speaking to me before I even got married. So, my wife and I only um, had one uh, reading uh, performed at our wedding that wasn't written by a family member. So we had things that were written by other uh, by people in our family that were kind of important documents to us. But the only thing that we had that was just by someone famous or a text, as it were, was from the introduction to Lusa Rigorize and Ethics of Sexual Difference. And uh, it's a passage where she talks about the importance of wonder and about how that can be disrupted by the involvement of a third. And in particular, uh, couples, Rigorai em- uh, emphasizes, tend to lose that sense of wonder for each other when uh, they make their relationship about a third, when, uh, about a child especially, or for particularly religious people, about God. 
that uh, uh, the meaning of a relationship is ultimately grounded in this um, higher or more foundational, depending on the metaphor, relationship to God. And for a rigorai, both of those are distractions from the between of the relationship. Mm. Uh, really good. I um, Looking at this, it's very clear, and I'm sure this is coming out of your work um, with Schelling and Hegel, but you, you dwell at length in the introduction on just your method and dialectic. So if you don't mind sharing with our listeners, uh, as you understand it, because you give kind of a nuanced take on it, what is dialectics or dialectic that you, that you use here? And why did you use it for this topic? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a great question. So uh, um, dialectics, uh, as far as I know, is first used as a technical philosophical term in Plato. And uh, for Plato, dialectics is the stage of philosophy that one uh, that carries one up to that point when one can finally um, know the good and do real philosophy. <laughs> one can speak from a standpoint of knowing. And so dialectics is that stage where you're climbing up the divided line, as it were, where you are um, uh, formulating. And the, um, the Greek word that Plato uses is hypotheses. Hmm literally uh, stepping stones or things you put under uh, your feet. And so um, dialectics then is uh, an approach to philosophy that advances hypotheses, provisional ways of um, describing what is, what matters, and uh, then working through the um, what if we pursue that hypothesis to the end. So, of course, that's what Socrates is doing through many of the dialogues, especially when he's emphasizing that he doesn't know anything. And even though uh, Plato always has, uh, or not always, but frequently, especially in the middle dialogues, emphasizes that, like in the Phaedo or the, or the Republic, that there, there must be this point where the dialectics ends. You've got to have this point where you uh, affix your knowledge, where you tie it down in some way. And the dialectical approach doesn't really do that. And so um, the two most important thinkers for me methodologically are um, Hegel and Beauvoir, both of whom I think uh, use dialectical thinking in a, um, uh, a playful way that aims to be structured, but also emphasizes the ways that our knowledge continually breaks down. So uh, in the 19th century, with both Hegel and Marx, there is an emphasis that uh, dialectics isn't something that is just going on between two interlocutors. It's something that is there in the world, that there is a kind of structure that we find in the world uh, where certain hypotheses or attempts to make the world meaningful or attempts to make the world work in a certain way, they tend to break down. Hmm. And so they, uh, that breakdown of attempts at making something work, uh, I think, so Beauvoir here is my hero in describing the ways that um, those attempts break down. But uh, 
In the specifics, at least, I think Hegel is really good at this. Hegel is often seen uh, from up on high and uh, read from the end, as it were, just to... Uh, um, the, the point of Hegel is a goal of something called absolute knowing or absolute spirit in the mature system, where really what makes Hegel worth reading is uh, uh, the acute sense of irony that he evinces when he uh, explores the breakdown of all these different ways of conceiving one's world. And... Uh, um, Beauvoir has both that and a sense of humor about it. <laughs> so if uh, if we follow Kierkegaard and say that humor is kind of the next step beyond irony, and um, then uh, uh, Hegel was very good at seeing the irony in the world. And Beauvoir can even see a little bit of humor in that as well. And so uh, in, uh, the, re uh, the reason why I think of recognition in general, at least the first two books are going to be dialectical. Mm -hmm. The third, the solidarity book may have more of a narrative structure to it, mm. but uh, the reason why I called it a dialectical structure is I I want to explore the ways that intimacy is something that we can find meaning in through the breakdown of any way of conceiving it. Uh, I don't think that there is an ideal of intimacy, and uh, it's not just that human beings aren't equipped for intimacy, like there is some divine demand that's put upon us that we lowly humans can't meet. I think that it's an incoherent concept. I think that uh, intimacy can't really mean anything at all. We can't give a set of necessary and condi sufficient conditions for what would constitute intimacy. And each of the 10 chapters in the intimacy book is aimed at showing uh, a way that one of those hypotheses, one of those attempts at securing intimacy breaks down in its own terms. And so the reason why I choose a dialectical approach is I think that that's actually how intimacy works. I think that's how recognition in general works. Uh, when we're looking for recognition, we're looking for something that ultimately doesn't even make sense. We can't, uh, we can't even conceive hmm. of what we're looking for. And so when you're, you're okay with in, uh, intimacy being incoherent because you think that ultimately re recognition is incoherent or we just don't even, we don't even know what we're asking for or would incoherence be, would you apply that to uh, recognition as well in this project? Yeah, to say I'm okay with it is, uh, um, I think to say too much because I'm still haunted by these problems. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh I do think, so one of the, um, uh, I do think that in applying a dialectical approach, we can find meaning even in the breakdown. Hmm. One of my favorite quotes for organizing my thinking on this comes from Leonard Cohen, uh, who says, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. Hmm. And I think dialectics is really good at exploring the ways that the this brokenness of our concepts allows light to get in. And that's one way that I contrast it with deconstruction. This, and uh, for instance, Derrida's mature work, this is something that he's also aiming for too. 
So he spent his career in showing ways that texts break down on their own terms, that uh, they have these conflicting uh, aims just built into the very, their very structure as texts, so much that you can't even say that the texts have a structure. They are deconstructing themselves as they go along. Uh, and that means that the mature Derrida is trying to articulate, okay, what is this horizon that emerges out of this breakdown? What is this democracy to come, for instance, that we can't really even articulate? And uh, I think that that jumps to the end. That's trying to, to say that, okay, we've done this, now where are we? And what I like about dialectical approaches like Hegel's and Beauvoir's is, no, it's in living that constant breakdown that we should uh, look for that meaning. And uh, these forms of intimacy, even though they are incoherent, you can't actually achieve intimacy through, with someone through touching them. That doesn't mean that we were dumb all along to be doing the uh, touching, that we were uh, to be uh, pursuing intimacy through touching. Instead, we were, uh, um, we need to find some kind of meaning uh, in, or, or rather, the structure of the meaning of intimacy uh, appears in that breakdown of the concepts by which we might define intimacy. Hmm. Uh, is any of this... Uh... Uh, would any of this work with Camus' uh, version of the absurd? Just that uh, we create meaning even when it breaks down? Um, I, possibly, but I read Camus... Uh, I mean, it's, it's too much of a black box for me when I read it. It's just that uh, there's this radical openness that emerges with the absurd. And you can go anywhere now. Hmm. It's kind of like at the end of the Matrix when you got all that code and you realize, oh, crap, I can fly now. <laughs> and uh, that, that uh, um, it's just like, I can do anything now. And uh, um, code is just a bunch of scribbly stuff that's on the screen that way. And uh, uh, although I think it's a, a similar move, and I think that Hegel recognizes that in the breakdown of our rational ways of understanding the world, there is kind of a radical freedom that, that emerges. There's not much more to say at that point. Uh, and Okay, yeah, we're free. And uh, I think a dialectical approach, uh, in Hegel's words, it tarries with the negative. It just hangs out in those various way, uh, attempts at making sense of the world and plays around with them, and is even willing to kind of uh, say, well, what if this way of trying to live one's life, what if it were just subtly different? Like, we know it didn't work for the Romans, or we know it didn't work for this particular form of life, but maybe there is a, a different way that you can be a Stoic and still mm -hmm. uh, make your life meaningful. And then you, uh, then you kind of work through it, and through a kind of dialectical imagination, other problems keep arising. And uh, that, uh, that effort just to 
play around at these doom uh, at these doomed hypotheses. That's what dialectics. That's what gives it its substance. Yeah, to make sure that I'm following you, and uh, many times when I've I've talked to philosophers who talk about the importance of foundational concepts, um, and they describe their project as a house that you have to make sure the foundation is secure and move on. And in this case, uh, dialectics like just rejects that model entirely because its foundations are things that can be subtracted at any time when they are shown to not work. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, although there is kind of still a structure uh, in dialectical approaches like Hegel's in that uh, it doesn't, uh, the later chapters uh, make sense because they follow the earlier ones. And so it's because um, we failed to, atten- uh, to achieve intimacy through giving a gift, for in- instance, that we can seek it in, uh, or that we try to seek it in other ways. Uh, but a better met. Actually, no, I like my first, uh, I like that first formulation better. It's because it failed that we can seek it in other ways, not necessarily that we do have to try it in these other in these new ways. Sorry, no, no, ahead. no. And, and that is an important distinction between you can do something and you have to do something. Uh, so for me, it almost sounds more like there's a there's a metaphor, even as I was writing questions. Uh, one of the questions is, what have you learned about intimacy on this journey? Because it does feel like it has more of a, a journey and, and a history uh, aspect to it than perhaps a, uh, a housing structure. Like there's still a structure to a story, for instance, but it's very different from the kind of <laughs> structure you expect from, uh, you know, if, if I had a... Uh, Cracks in the wall to let light in are all very well and good. But in Florida, uh, there's a lot of other things that get let in (laughs) besides light. So uh, does that am I tracking with you there or uh, what what do you what are your thoughts on that? No, that's great. And uh, so uh, I think the I think there can be a tyranny of stories, though. Hmm. And so, uh, um, yes, we're the type of people. We're the type of beings uh, that uh, find meaning, especially in stories and um, in a relationship. Uh, um, Of course, one of the most important ways that we um, build intimacy is by telling our stories together. And I think that's even more crucial at the level of society when we talk about solidarity. But uh, stories. are always told in this way in retrospect. Even when you are telling the story of your future, you're um, telling the story of what will have been. And uh, so uh, for Hegel, that's the attitude of what he calls reason in a formal sense. So his technical term for to reason, is uh, um, an ability to see a whole and uh, find in that, uh, what it is that guided everything, something that is beyond the X cause Y cause Z, but rather, as in Kant's terms, the unconditioned. And, and so it's the power of reason that looks to the past and tells the story. And that's 
crucial for Hegel to being a citizen of the world. If you don't look to the past and try to understand what's rational about it, then you're just floating. Hmm. But that's not the end for Hegel. Uh, for Hegel, reason is, uh, in his Phenomenology of Spirit, chapter five in an eight-chapter book. So it's there in the middle. It's something that we eventually overcome. And uh, we can't live solely on our lives being meaningful because of this story that we tell. Part of that, uh, Camus is aware of too. It's this uh, need for an openness that uh, um, if everything that I've done is uh, justified by some uh, story and from something that is operating beyond the sequence of, of events that I live through, then we're not really free. And so, uh, yes, uh, telling a story is part of how we often try to find meaning. But that story is never going to be something that's shared. And so, um, like, if a couple just has their story that, uh, like, they find their meaning when at dinner parties, someone asks them their story of how they met, and they love it, and they kind of interrupt each other, and they say, like, that's what elevates the relationship more than anything, their story, just presenting it, because they find it really charming and cute or whatever, then that's what I call a fetish. Yeah. That is uh, something that is external to the... Um, uh, the between or whatever it is that would um, um, be there um, for the couple. And uh, granted, there is no between. That's an incoherent idea, too. But uh, it's something that each of them ultimately is going to have a different kind of relationship to. It's something that uh, if it's even if it's their story, there's going to be one person's relationship to the story versus the other person's relationship to the story. Well, and it's interesting that that's, um, I can see the point that you're making. For me, it seems like a dead end anyways, because at some point, if the most important thing is telling your story, then living forward doesn't really make sense. Because if the whole, if you're, if all your meaning is wrapped up in telling the past, then at some, like that, storytelling itself starts to take place in time and you can't tell I, I can't imagine telling a story about telling your story and considering that meaningful right or am, am i missing something there well um, um it gets boring pretty fast of course <laughs> couples do uh, uh i mean they love telling the story about how he, he always tells the story this way and so that's kind of like the, this meta level of I get him because I know that he's going to tell the story this way and he's going to get this one part. He's going to skew this one part. You always part get that wrong. That yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, uh, in general, yeah, you're right that uh, um, you get diminishing returns and the more meta you get in uh, your stories about your stories. Yes, which is part of, I mean, and I think that comes out a little bit in the, the fetish chapter as well. But I, before we go too far into that, I, I was curious what motivated the choice of each of the kind of 10 uh, 
would they be called movements, the 10 dialectical movements? And, you know, especially why start with uh, the gift? What motivated that for you? That's the hardest question. And I do in the book kind of, uh, uh, I have various ways of getting around that question. And so that's the obsession of Hegel too, that uh, he's always asking, with what must a philosophy begin? And uh, um, ultimately, the way he does philosophy means you've got to leave that beginning behind no matter what. <laughs> and so, uh, but he do also doesn't think that it's purely arbitrary because of this, uh, we talked about the structure uh, previously, that it's not a foundation that needs to be secure, but at the same time, uh, where you begin does in a way shape the possibilities that come after it. And uh, it does feel natural to me to, th to think of um, this uh, one way that intimacy, the, the uh, the desire for intimacy feels so acute, but is so far away is in wanting to give a gift. And so I'm thinking of teenagers who um, think of intimacy in terms of what they have to offer, like they've never had a serious romantic relationship, say, before. And they, they understand this romantic relationship is a different in kind from all the relationships that they've had before in a way they can't really articulate yet. And so uh, you're looking for, okay, what's, what's the perfect gift? <laughs> what, uh, how, how can I secure this intimacy just through a gift? And you don't really want the gift to be, uh, to ask for something in return because then it's not a gift. And, uh, you want it just to be a gift to be a gift, and you want it to be welcome and perfect, but uh, it can't just, uh, if it's just something that you kind of uh, hand in then run away, then uh, that intimacy is pretty quickly dissolved. That, oh, and I could so see teenage boy, right? Like, just like, here, and the, I mean, it just feels, I, I, I could see Napoleon Dynamite doing that right now. Um, <laughs> that kind of awkwardness, which is the exact opposite of intimacy, right? Even though that's really what he wants, if, if I'm tracking with you. Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's the opposite of intimacy. And so I, I think that you can see in it uh, something that, uh, that, that's so sweet, if you understand really what it is. But it, um, also, it's, it's, um, it is a very... Uh, 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 it breaks down as a form of intimacy very quickly. <laughs> so yeah, it's the opposite of intimacy in that it's, it's very low level and far away from anything that might be a consummate intimacy, which again, there's no such thing. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, actually, and that, I think that's partly my mistake in thinking that awkwardness is the opposite of intimacy. It's not right. You can have an awkward intimacy. Um, I, I, well, uh, understanding of course that intimacy is, uh, in, in your version of things here, an incoherent, uh, concept, but, uh, I could definitely see where there, there's that intimate moment between them that is at the same moment, still awkward, right? Yeah. And so, uh, really what I think you're describing there is, uh, the dialectic between the between and the beyond. Mm. 
And uh, I, uh, I talk about these terms in relationship to both Beauvoir and Kierkegaard. And so for, uh, for them, uh, dialectics are, are kind of four terms in that you, uh, you've got both parties and you've got what's between them and then what's beyond. And, and so, uh, like, if we're watching this romantic comedy, the sequel to Napoleon Dynamite, where he finally starts to approach a girl <laughs> that has this, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that Napoleon Dynamite is straight. Uh, I don't remember <laughs> the movie well enough. But, uh, but anyway, he, uh, so he finally approaches her and uh, has this awkward interaction with the gift. I think what we are, what, what makes that feel intimate, intimate in a way uh, if they kind of sit on that um, awkwardness is that it highlights the beyond. Hmm. And sometimes when you're deeper into a relationship, uh, that, uh, that between uh, needs the beyond, needs the, uh, um, the reminder that there is something that transcends um, whatever it is that can be held between both parties. And uh, so for Erigori, this, um, this means we need to always be, um, always, or at least repeatedly find ourselves in a, a state of wonder and uh, be um, drawn to the fact that there isn't any totality that is achieved between the two of us, that there is something that points beyond that. And uh, that non-consummation, I think, is what makes awkwardness just uh, um, feel good in a way, uh, especially um, from a third-party perspective. Be like, uh, And when we can tell the narratives of ourselves and we can say that... Um, Part of our story, for instance, was not only that between, but that beyond. Hmm. But what the dialectical approach shows is that uh, that intimacy was never really there in your recapitulation of it, of the between and the beyond that uh, the partners shared and didn't share. Uh, rather, uh, that awkwardness was... Uh, not a consummation of intimacy. <laughs> that was, uh, uh, it, it really is uh, um, a failure of intimacy. Mm. These two people are really not connecting in a crucial way too. They are different and they don't know what the next step is to um, achieve a, a, a regular give and take, say, of uh, what I call a heartbeat. Yes, yeah, and... Um that that kind of back and forth uh makes sense in, in this uh you know even as you talk about story there there's that consistent structure even and you talk about conflict um there there is that that consistent back and forth uh i'm curious uh, obviously you know you you choose these moments um and these kind of occasions for uh dialectics to take place i, I was I was kind of surprised when I looked at it I, that, you know, and it's funny considering that your project is about recognition. I thought that knowing and or being known would maybe be one of those moments. Um, 
Is that something that would fit in this book? That it could be like an additional chapter? Is that something that's going to show up later in your project uh, of, of recognition? Yeah, um, so mostly uh, what you're talking about uh, is in the value book. That uh, in being known as something, mm. in being known as uh, good or wise or hot or whatever value that I want to be associated with me, uh, that's not really intimacy. And so from our partners, we don't just want intimacy. We also want um, a pursuit of value. And sometimes that value is reflexive. We want to be valuable. And sometimes it's more about um, we want to live our values together. And sometimes it's more about I want to be able to um, have valuable things or pursue valuable goals. And I want to make sure that my partner is able to do that with me. And, and so uh, those are... Um, those complicate um, relationships to a great degree, degree. And so you're absolutely right to ask, like, isn't that important in a relationship too? I just don't think that uh, those are ways that we pursue intimacy. In, uh, in wanting my partner to think I'm beautiful, for instance, that uh, it's a natural enough desire, but I'm, uh, I don't think that what I'm looking for there is um, more intimacy with them. Instead, that's uh, um, wanting to be valuable in this particular way. Uh, I think I'm tracking with you. Let me give kind of a for instance, because this is an example that kept coming up in my head as I was reading the book. And maybe I'm, uh, maybe this is a difference in terminology. Maybe this is me just misunderstanding the terminology. I'm happy to be stupid that's you know story of my life so far so as we as we think about this and we um when uh when a moment happens and there's a variety of interpretations my background's in philosophical hermeneutics so this is kind of how i i think about it um and you're you meet eyes with someone across the room and there's so many different things they could be thinking but in a way that even seems to transcend <laughs> interpretation, you know exactly what they're thinking. That to me typifies a kind of intimate moment. But, and, and to me that feels like, I, oh, I'm, I'm being seen, I am being known, and I am knowing the other person. But maybe I'm using the terms incorrectly, or maybe I'm misunderstanding intimacy. How would you explain that moment of, you know, it, it kind of showed up a little bit in the humor and the irony, right? Like where, where you have this situation and it, it could be thought of in multiple different ways, but you almost can't help. You're, you're trying to stifle laughter as you meet eyes across a room. And, you, and uh, a lot of times that's what friendships are formed on are those moments. Good. Yeah. And so um, I think those are, are they're, they're different things that can be going on when you have that, um, that meeting mm -hmm. of... Uh, um, like, uh, I mean, one possibility obviously is um, it's completely one-sided, and this is a feeling that one person has, and actually their attitude is much more like that of a stalker. <laughs> that uh, they're projecting an intimacy that isn't real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
We just happen uh, so, to meet but, eyes, but, and the other person looks like they're connecting with. Yeah, sorry, I'm understanding. <laughs> yeah, but um, like when it's a joke, and you're, uh, and so like n- no one else seems to be on the verge of laughter in the room, and the two of you are uh, are can bar- barely contain yourselves. That that's irony. That's uh, um, what what makes it so intimate is you are actually enfolding everyone else in the room into something that the two of you are sharing. That uh, what makes this moment so meaningful is the two of you get something about the, um, the situation and really about life itself. So if it's genuinely funny to you, then probably what you're sharing is a sense of the breakdown of the meaning of everything at all. And so that uh, uh, what makes humor so delightful is just uh, this, uh, um, the break between the intense buildup of tension and the, um, the collapse of all meaning uh, at all. Um, that's not my reading, that's Kant basically on humor, uh, supplemented with some contemporary evolutionary biology. But, um, uh, so, yeah, w- um, and that's what I call irony. It's a way of pursuing intimacy by uh, sharing the fact that others can't share this moment with you. And uh, that means that you're basically enfolding everyone else into the relationship. And so it's a, it's a more complicated version of the third that we began with talking about today, in that uh, you've got uh, um, the, uh, your, your, your relationship is defined, or the intimacy uh, of this kind is defined by the fact that the two of you can share something that others aren't sharing. And the non-sharing of those other people uh, is something that is pretty contingent. So my favorite example of irony came, uh, I discussed it in the book, I think. Um, It came during uh, one of the uh, years, um, there was a riot following uh, a Stanley Cup uh, match. Yes, you did mention uh, this, but go ahead. I think it was in Vancouver. And there was this beautiful picture taken of where this, uh, I think it was a boyfriend had uh, uh, reached down to help up his girlfriend who had fallen during the riot. And you see in the background, there are police with riot shields and there um, there are flames in the distance. And uh, he's kissing her and it's a beautifully composed photograph. And uh, uh, you think, what, what perfect intimacy. Uh, and the structure of that intimacy is irony. It's... Uh, it's perfect intimacy because all around things are burning. Uh, there's chaos, but we can have this one perfect moment. But that enfolding is uh, always liable to be refolded by the relationship that each partner has to other people. So the guy in the photograph got called on to morning shows to talk about what happened. And so uh, this private moment is actually something that he's sharing with uh, whatever morning show host he was talking to or whatever. Well, and you also said his mom uh, was like interviewed and was talking about how romantic he is, which to me is very like, (laughs) 
<laughs> it definitely refolds in in ways that you're like that does, you, you kind of remove some of the romance when you're, you're like oh he's such a romantic boy you know i just have this image right <laughs> yeah i'd forgotten about that <laughs> so yes uh that mom <laughs> i think what, i think when you say mom in that way what you're really doing is reacting to the sudden reorientation yes. <laughs> to of uh of the meaning and uh, one of the reasons why parents are so cringy is that uh, um, in your, when you are trying to live your life, and you're, um, especially with the intensity that a teenager or a young adult tries to live their life with, this reminder that there is another very square perspective on the same phenomenon um, totally kills the mood. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so, uh, yeah. And so... That's the irony reading of what's going on. But I, I, the, the couple meeting each other across the room, meeting eyes, there's one more possibility that I wanted to throw out there. Maybe what you're doing is seeing the real possibility of a future together. Hmm. And uh, what, uh, what makes that feel so intimate is that idea that uh, no matter what comes to us, and I know there will be many unexpected things that come to us, uh, I believe that I can spend uh, my life with this person. And if that's the intense thought that you're having, um, it's either shared or not shared. If it's, if it's not shared, then it's just like that stalker situation I began with. <laughs> but if it is shared, then that's what I call the, the future in the next, the last chapter. Right. And uh, that... Um, I think even orienting your relationship to the future with all its openness and not having any concrete plans that would be a fetish that you're saying uh, the relationship lives or dies based on whether we achieve these goals, not anything so concrete, but, in, but even an open acceptance of the future is still not sufficient to be a, a closeness beyond closeness, a, a form of intimacy. It would still be um, projecting some uh, something outside of uh, who the couple is mm. that would ultimately secure their meaning. So, some for some religious people, this can be something like um, uh, uh, a second coming or some kind of. Uh, messianic approach like um in judaism for instance the um the work we all do to establish peace on the on earth so that um we um have this the second coming mm. um or um uh so no matter how rich how rich the detail you enfold into that future without making anything like a fetish it's still not going to be our intimacy and therefore um we're going to have to think about um the fact that we're going to die and that uh there is going to be that uh the, um, the fact that either we don't stay together forever or one of us sees the other one dead mm. unless you pull a it, what is it um 
and it, it's a gruesome song, but my wife and I both love it. The the Smiths, where it's like, and if a ten ton truck, you know that is. But <laughs> uh, I don't know if you're familiar. With, there's a light that never goes out, and if a ten ton truck kills the both of us to die by your side would be such a heavenly way to die. But in in either case, you're, there's always going to be someone who doesn't mourn the other, which you you make that point uh, in the last chapter, right? And so it, mourning can never be the fulfillment of intimacy because there's always someone who who isn't doing the mourning, even if you both happen to uh, pass away at the same time. Yeah, or the Romeo and Juliet situation where you actually have both get to mourn each other, and uh, because they they both see the other one die. But even still, uh, the um, that mourning is not shared yeah. by uh, uh, each each one of them. Uh, does that mourning alone, uh, even though it's a kind, uh, it's not strictly alone. I mean, we're haunted by the um, the people we've lost, and mm. so we can't entirely say that it's uh, it's something going on inside uh, a single person's head. Right. Uh, that's too reductive, I think. I do think that mourning really is a way of pursuing intimacy, hmm. but it also can't really hang its hat on anything. It can't really say that I've done the mourning. So I've, um, uh, I've talked with my wife ever since early in our dating about our deaths, and we've both established that she should be the one to die first <laughs> because... Uh, she would not be okay with me dying, and uh, uh, I want to know what it's like to lose her and then have <laughs> six months to, to have that, and then I'll be done with life. <laughs> so uh, obviously there's something absurd about this planning, that uh, uh, we can't plan for how we're going to die. But the, the ways that we, we look for that meaning right. in the fact that the other is going to die, that... Uh, uh, what I, uh, what I want out of that is consummating the relationship in some way. Mm. So this consummation of the relationship really is doing it all. <laughs> and, and, um, but as I wrote about that, I realized, no, that's not a consummate relationship. That's not doing it all. Mm. That's just... A, a, um, that that completest urge to have the whole relationship, uh, it still is uh, an abstraction that fails to really get everything that was there in the relationship. It would be odd to say, I'm looking forward to mourning you, right? Like that would, <laughs> I mean, I, I could see situations where someone could say that, but that it's like, I, I, I'm pretty sure that would create some distance in the intimacy. <laughs> Probably, but um, I want to be considerate of your time. Uh, you talked about the future, and it almost seems like you know there's a present where you enfold uh, yourselves. Uh, you know, you're you're embedded against the world. Um, I'm curious when we talk about eyes meeting across, like in the case of let's say uh, two parents, Christmas morning, kids are opening the presents. Is there a way in which meeting eyes across? Could be could be a way of looking back at the past, and could that be an intimate moment where there there's a sense of completion of of satisfaction of what we've created is good. Definitely, and and so, uh, I mean, uh, it can be a recognition of the work that both parties have done, and uh, in this way, it can also be a kind of um, 
uh, recognition of value of um, that uh, each party contributed something to this moment. It can be uh, just uh, we each love them so damn much. And that's like the fetish that's uh, this uh, um, or um, irony too, or I mean, this, the third, the embedding uh, that uh, our meaning is there in the love of our children. Hmm. And uh, it's also still, I think, probably uh, a recognition of the future that uh, um, uh, we're going to get more things like this but they're not going to be exactly like this. Right. Our kids will never be this young and they'll never be excited in exactly the same way. And so uh, the two of you understanding in the same way what that future holds, uh, it can feel very um, intimate. But um, intimacy is never a feeling. Uh, if it's just a feeling, then a feeling is something that only takes place inside one person's skull. Um, and which you uh, reject because of the stalker thing, right? Like just because just because a stalker feels intimate with somebody doesn't mean that intimacy is happening, especially as he watches someone who's not even aware of his presence. Yeah, and, and also because of touching the uh, um, our relationship to our feelings is. Um, asymmetrical. Even when uh, I touch you and you feel me touch you, um, we have different relationships to that. We're not really sharing the touch. And and so I think that uh, so long as we spend, we emphasize feelings, uh, we are, um, uh, we're farther away from that, Hmm. which is another reason why I, uh, I, I find both Hegel and Beauvoir to be useful um, uh, guides. They're always reminding me to get over myself. Uh, in fact, that could be the tagline of the phenomenology of spirit, <laughs> like phenomenology of spirit or get over yourself. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Might help it reach like New York Beauvoir. Times bestseller list, you know, that's uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Maybe you'd have to get rid of the first part. Yes, too. yeah, yeah. Just be, get over yourself by Hegel, uh, a radical <laughs> translation. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And so um, uh, I think that uh, um, one of the so, although feelings are uh, always useful guides that can't be dismissed, there there's a lot of intelligence that's built into why we feel the way we do. When we think that the feeling is what's most real or what matters most, that's when we're being our most solipsistic. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that makes, which is, of course, the opposite of what intimacy should, intimacy should be. Um, kind of as a last question for our listeners, as you've taken this journey, uh, like this dialectical journey through intimacy, what has been the most important things that you feel that you have learned or the most important part, uh, parts of those journeys for yourself? I just, <laughs> so, uh, no I just pressure. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that, that, 
uh, what I get out of Hegel and Beauvoir is get over yourself. Mm. And so uh, now I've got to move in the opposite direction to answer this question. <laughs> I've got to um, to say, why did this book matter for me? <laughs> so like, how can I integrate uh, um, this uh, dialectical narrative into a narrative of my life and my uh, achievement in becoming who I am? And I think I want to beg off that question. That's actually, totally but fine. I, I'll try to do it. I'll try to, I mean, I, I, I'll at least try to do it in a personally informative way the, so that it doesn't just, uh, um, because. Um, yeah, I was not looking for like intense personal examples of intimacy. My apologies for. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, no, not that at all. Okay. Um, but um, in a Hawaiian context, especially where I am right now, um, uh, someone is only really worth listening to if they're willing to put themselves into the discussion to some extent. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something that I naturally do anywhere, anyway, just because of um, the way that my mind works, that sometimes I, I show up in the, in the narrative. And so um, uh, I will share that the reason why I don't want to make this book about me is there is too much of uh, uh, a tendency uh, for, um, so this is all audio and uh, people aren't seeing me, I'm a white guy. And uh, so much of the, um, the stories that we've told about uh, the history of philosophy have been emphasized on how they mattered for white people, uh, white men especially. And I don't think that uh, having uh, the journey of self-discovery of a white man highlighted mm. is doing anyone any favors. Mm. Uh, we don't need to know anything more about, uh, uh, I mean, so uh, the romantics covered this mm. uh, back with the sorrows of young Werther and, and uh, uh, the intense, I mean, the term Bildungsroman was invented for this kind of uh, journey of self-discovery, of what it means in struggling through a particular kind of work to come to a deeper understanding of yourself. That's something that uh, is, uh, I think, uh, one contribution that one can make to understanding what it means to be a human being. But there are enough of those stories out there that I don't need to add any. If I had a really good one, I would write Mo. I, I, like I had a good, really good story to that effect, I'd add one because uh, why not? But <laughs> I don't have it. And uh, I don't think that it's, uh, I don't feel all that bad about not having prepared one because uh, I don't think that that's really where philosophy needs to be right now. Hmm. I don't think that we need more of those kinds of stories. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's a, that's a very thoughtful answer. And uh, I, one, just want to say uh, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for sharing uh, your time. And uh, uh, thank you for uh, your work on your book. It was uh, an enjoyable read. Thank you so much. This was fun. <laughs> <laughs>